first of all, welcome. It's amazing to have you over here. Uh, and you're a very inspiring person in the open source community to a lot of us. And like what like what makes it even better is that um, like you're like the the things you've built are like used by millions of developers all across the world, right? Which is uh, which is really cool. And that's that's including me. Like I use Starship uh, on uh, on all my shells on PowerShell, CMD, like literally everything that's there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like I just want to say that it's a it's a great honor to ha to have you on, and we really appreciate you uh, joining this chat with us. Absolutely, it's it's super flattering, and and it's a it's a joy to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, like at the at the end of the day, at the end of the day, uh, I just made this out of necessity, out of a, a thing that I wanted for myself, and it just so happened to kind of break a chord with people. Um, so yeah, it's it's always super humbling to just see how far you know Starship and and other projects have have kind of grown with time. Cool stuff. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, I guess the first question in mind, like, uh, how did you start your journey, right? Like, where did you start and what got you interested in software development? Yeah, yeah. Um, so for me, it was, it was a bit of a, a winding road. I've always kind of been interested in, in programming computers and stuff. Uh, I had my first computer when I was like uh, three or four. Uh, it, was, it was a good old Windows 3.1 and DOS. It was, a, it was an old clunker, but... Um, I was able to play Pac-Man on it, so I was happy. Uh, and from then, I, I started. I, I learned a bit of scripting through like through through high school and stuff, um, but nothing serious. Uh, over the course of like math class, I'd be spending my time um, instead of studying, just writing programs that would answer exam questions for me, like uh, plugging in the the uh, I don't know the darn what were they. The, the, the different formulas you'd need, uh, I'd be like making uh, scripts in my graphing calculator to kind of answer those questions for me. Um, so I don't know if it's the right way to do math class, but uh, I came out a better programmer for it. Um, after high school, I went on to study. Well, I, 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 I thought to myself, I don't want to sit in front of a computer all day and just type code. That sounds boring, and uh, I won't like it over time. Uh, I was dead wrong. Uh, I, I went into electrical engineering because I thought it was like programming adjacent. Uh, turns out it's like 50% programming and 50% like hard physics. And I would ace the programming parts of it. Like they're called sequential circuits. So you're making basically programs with circuitry. Uh, and the other 50%, I'd like just absolutely get devastated. I would bomb those tests. Um, so uh, I dropped out of school and went on to do game testing, which was so much fun. It's really just playing games all day. Um, but, you know, it was a lot of monotony. It was a lot of like playing the same level every day. Um, and I was, I was doing like performance testing of games. So I'd be like checking frame rates of the level to make sure that like daily patches of the game didn't, didn't break. The, the game I was testing at the time was like League of Legends. So I'd, I, I loved the game, but I got really sick of it by the end of uh, testing it. So what I would do is um, I learned a little bit of auto hotkey, automated the process of testing the games, and then would uh, spend my time during work learning to program. So the computer would be doing its own thing. I'd be learning more automation, more programming. Uh, and from then, I, I went on to like kind of kick off my career in programming uh, with this um, newfound skill that I got by not 
doing work. I don't know if it was uh, the ethical thing to do, but um, I came out of it, I, I think, better off. From then, I went on to, to do web development uh, after doing like web automation and web testing. Um, and web development transitioned into like kind of what I'm doing now. So uh, I worked at Shutterstock and Autodesk, Autodesk as a web developer um, and Auth0, and most recently now Code Sandbox. So that's kind of been my progression. And over that time, like I had side projects that kind of leveled up my programming ability. So um, in my free time, I, I, uh, my, my friend and I, uh, my friend Josh Starr, and I built a, a platform for tracking what anime is coming out. It's called AnyChart. Um, and then we went on to make AnyList, which is a, uh, kind of like a social cataloging site, social network for anime fans. Um, and that's growing tremendously. That's got now like, um, uh, you know, one and a half million users. And, wow. to, and, and also went on to build, uh, you know, Starship in my free time. Um, we can, I guess, dig a little deeper into Starship specifically, because um, that's got a cool story, I guess. I mean, absolutely. And I think something that's really fascinating is the fact that, like, he also, like, used automation, right? So something like, like that I can actually relate to you um, is that, like, early in my journey as well, um, I was writing the software that, that basically installs packages. Like, like, like for example, it, 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 it could install browsers. Um, it, it could install all sorts of stuff, right? Um, and like there, there came a time where I actually needed to like kind of learn how to automate updating each package. So um, I actually found like, I, I mean, I also saw like auto hotkey and stuff, but I think like what you did with, with automation was, was, was really cool. Like, I don't think there was something wrong to do. I think that was, <laughs> that was actually pretty smart to do. Um, so <laughs> yeah. And like, I mean, I've, I've also spent a lot of time automating stuff. Uh, I find it pretty fascinating actually. Um, like how you can automate something that that's kind of seemingly impossible to actually automate, right? Um, it's really cool, and uh, and yeah, I mean, we can go into we can really go into Starship, and uh, and we'd also be very interested in in like kind of hearing your uh, your journey after like dropping out, right? It's uh, it's not something that that everyone does, and it's it's pretty interesting. So we would love to know more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I could talk a bit about like how Starship came to be. Um, so when I was learning about like the terminal and command line and stuff, uh, I saw all these like cool different shells that people were using. So uh, the popular one was Z shell. Everyone was saying like to upgrade your terminal experience, install Z shell. Um, and 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 the one that came installed with Mac OS is like Bash. And I had played with PowerShell on Windows, um, but the one that I fell in love with is Fish, and I still use it to this day. I've I found Fish. Uh, it's got some quirks that makes it that make it a little different from the other conventional shells. Um, if you come from like Z shell or Bash, it has so many more conveniences in that you get like tab completion and syntax highlighting and like things that usually you'd have to install like a dozen plugins to make it feel like that. Um, the on the flip side, it's got its own kind of unique syntax. Um, though more and more with every update, like the most recent update, they added they kind of like introduced the same syntax as Z shell, uh, which has been a frustration. People would like try to run Z shell scripts in fish or bash scripts in fish and it wouldn't work. But now it kind of generally does. So that's less of an issue. But once you get over that syntax hurdle, it's a beautiful shell. Uh, so I was looking to kind of make my shell look cool uh, and feel good. 
in a way that you could very easily on Z shell. Um, notably, there was an existing prompt uh, called Spaceship ZSH. Uh, you can see where maybe Starship's inspiration came from. Uh, I would use Spaceship um, on my ZS ZSH installation, but it was nothing like it for Fish. Um, so I went on to make, kind of ported over to Fish. I made Space Fish. Uh, all these names get confusing, but uh, Space Fish was my first like open source project that kind of garnered some interest. Uh, it got you know we, we'd have a few hundred people installing it uh, every week. Um, it started amassing a few contributors that were like regular contributors, and that was a lot of fun. But the real hurdle was every time. Like it was a one-to-one -one port. I would read a line of ZSH and kind of translate it to the fish equivalent, uh, which means that we also got all of their bugs with it. We all we got like um, all the things that could be improved, performance hiccups that all came with it. Um, so I'd spend my time making a fix for the shell port and then backporting it to the ZSH port, uh, making pull requests to Spaceship, um, and that was. That was good, but it became a little untenable. I wanted to build new features. I wanted to make PRs to ZSH to contribute new things, uh, but I'd always have to port it over to Fish. It would—it's like a, a a lot of back and forth. It'd be frustrating. Um, so there was some previous work done with like introducing the concept of a shell agnostic prompt. Um, the maintainer of Spaceship actually made it. Dennis Davin, uh, he made a proof of concept in Node for what a cross-shell prompt would be like. And it was super enlightening. It had a, a lot of good ideas for how you can use like the same binary, the same executable to produce a, shell, uh, to produce a prompt for any shell. Um, but it was, there were a lot of drawbacks with it being in Node. Node is an interpreted language, so it takes a lot of time to spin up. The cold start time is very long. Uh, the amount of time it would take to go from zero to like showing just a very basic prompt, like just the directory, could take 100 milliseconds because Node has to interpret the entire JavaScript file and then execute it. It doesn't do any work ahead of time because it doesn't know what's in the file yet. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and, and like mm -hmm. in addition to that, I've, I've kind of seen that the, the startup times change a lot, like kind of depending on the, the, the system. So, mm -hmm. um, and I've also like experienced this, the, the same issues with with Python, right? It's uh, it takes a lot of time to actually start up, and these times like they can go for, for like anywhere from like point one seconds to two three seconds, and like yeah, I mean mm -hmm. like that's kind of that's something that's not very acceptable for a like for a shell, right? Because you just want to get in and you want to go. That's exactly it. Yeah. So so you can you can feel it. Uh, I tried using the the node proof of concept, and you could feel it was doing something different from other, from other prompts. Um, it, it took time. Like you could feel the moment between hitting Enter and then the next cursor appearing. So um, we, were, we were chatting about it. He was impressed by the work we were doing on, on Spacefish. I was impressed by the work he was doing on ZSH. And, and I thought, man, it'd be so cool if we could just collaborate on one unified code base and build these features together. Uh, he's like, oh, well, it didn't really work in Node. Uh, if we had somebody who knew like C or Rust or something, um, and I kind of I kind of heard that my ears perked up. Um, I remember reading at the time that on um, Stack Overflow's like uh, annual survey for the fourth year in a row at that time, Rust was the most loved programming language. Um, and and I was always curious like what makes a programming language 
so loved. Like, I, I'm passionate about JavaScript, but I, I wouldn't say it's without its flaws. What makes Rust so different? So it was kind of just, I wanted to just test myself and see, like, A, learn a bit of systems programming, because it's a whole new paradigm from, like, web development or, or Node or JavaScript. Um, and two, kind of like, see, yeah, what would, like, how, how much more performant would it be? And after two, three months, the Rust learning curve is steep. It is so hard to learn. It's like taking everything you know about programming and throwing it out the window. Very little of it kind of translates in. I can actually completely relate because when I tried to pick up Rust, mm -hmm. it took me like three times to actually like kind of force myself into, into writing that, that code, right? Because the, the, like the memory management, it, it tends to be pretty overwhelming, right? Like, like when you first look at it, um, the hello world is like so easy. Oh man, <laughs> I, I'm going to pick this up in a couple of seconds. And uh, you go ahead yeah. to memory management, stack and heap, and like, um, and at that point you're like, wait, I, like, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, these are things that you usually just don't have to think about at all. Yeah, um, exactly. So it's it's so difficult. Uh, it it can't be understated just how much of a learning curve it is. But once you get over that, oh my goodness, you feel you feel like your ability to program has like 10x overnight. Uh, you kind of you're able to spot bugs in other languages like that. You're able to kind of get a sense for what is unsafe code, uh, where your me memory is going. Um, so I, I mean, this is, a, this is a whole other thing, but I think that Rust is like well worth learning, even though it's difficult. I think it makes you a much better programmer overall. Um, but yeah, after making like a proof of concept, after trying out, uh, I saw like the Node proof of concept would take maybe 100, 120 second, milliseconds to to render. The ZSH original and the fish one would take maybe uh, 40 to 60 milliseconds. The Rust one, it took two, three milliseconds. It was absurd. And this was without putting like, any effort into performance. It just happened. It's just the magic of Rust. It's the magic of having like, a pre-compiled binary. My goodness. So from then, I, like, I, knew, I knew this was something. I knew I was hitting gold because... No one else was doing this. No one else was making a shell prompt in a systems programming language. And it made so much sense for the use case. Um, so from then, I put a lot of my time and effort into kind of giving it the opportunity and room to grow. Uh, what that means in open source is writing you know, beautiful tests, writing tests that give you a lot of confidence, um, writing documentation that makes it easy for people to get onboarded and to contribute. Usually this is like an afterthought. You're trying to get to something that has all the features you want. But I knew that much more valuable than that would be to have a lot of maintainers early on contribute and add those features with me. Um, so yeah, it, it, was, it was starting from like those basic principles of having good tests, good docs, and inviting good contributors. Uh, and from then it kind of just kind of exploded, right? It, it kind of grew tremendously uh, and is now like among Rust's 10 most starred projects. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so cool, right? And I mean, I think kind of another reason why Rust is so loved is because like the, the creators of the language and like the team, uh, like you can see that they're, they're trying to make it as easy as possible for you to, to understand errors. And I mean, heck, like they, they literally give you a tool that's going to, like, if you just do cargo clippy fix, like it'll just fix everything for you, right? It's, uh, I found that pretty cool, right? Because uh, it's not regularly that languages 
first of all, give you like nice, pretty errors that you can understand. Um, they have put in a lot of effort to make these, uh, like to make it as easy as possible to understand the errors. And uh, and I feel like it's just so much more reliable, right? Like you will you will naturally not like interpreted languages because because you only see the errors during runtime, right? Um, but like you should be seeing errors during compile time. Like that should be what's happening. Um, so. I feel like that's something that's uh, that's really cool that kind of Rust brings to the table, and I can also like kind of relate with you on the uh, like the the two millisecond thing, right? Um, for context, uh, again, I was t I was like kind of telling you about that tool that I uh, was writing to actually install uh, libraries and software on uh, on Windows PCs, right? Um, and when I actually so I thought that 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 Python was pretty fast, and uh, and initially, actually, it was pretty fine, right? Like, if you have maybe two, three imports, everything's good. Uh, once you start getting into, like, 20, 30 imports, a uh, complicated file structure, um, like, these startup times will, will skyrocket. Uh, and that's kind of when I realized, uh, uh, like, what have I done? Why have I written this in, in, in Python, <laughs> right? So, yeah. Um, and then, like, I just went to, to Rust, right? And the first thing I actually asked in the Rust server is, like, uh, do imports take time? And, and I got a straight up no. And I was like, <laughs> holy shit. So you can import whatever you want. And it doesn't really add to your startup time unless like these libraries are actually running some code on startup. But I feel like that's, that's super cool. I feel like kind of this, this whole free imports, uh, really, really good developer tooling um, and, uh, and a really satisfying experience. Like, like I've seen the Rust IDE support is one of the best on the like it's it's probably the best in the world like the, like nothing uh, actually uh comes even close to it right so i mean i think that's something really cool right which is that people have been putting in a lot of effort into the actual ecosystem and the tooling um and i think that's also something that uh, i mean i think that's one of the biggest reasons why rust is, is the most loved language in the world so so i think that's that's really cool yeah yeah, yeah. it rust does a really cool job like a really good job of democratizing systems programming. Uh, until now, systems programming has, has been really just for people who, who are willing to, you know, take, who are willing to, 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 I guess, take the pain of working with C, right? Um, if, if you're not willing to make that sacrifice, you just need to deal with, with, you know, higher level languages. But Rust makes it more approachable, uses more modern language fundamentals, built-in linting, built-in formatting, built-in, like, it, it's, it's like a very complete package, um, built-in benchmarking and built-in test runner. Like, these are things that only, only modern languages have been introducing. And it's so cool seeing, you know, kind of a competitor to C in the space that is confidence-inspiring in a way that C could never be because of memory management, while also giving the conveniences and ergonomics of a modern language. It's, it's really an incredible language. Exactly, um, and I think like the the thing that actually completed the package for me was the the crates registry, right? Like there is it, it has a massive ecosystem, and um, like when you look at C, it's pretty hard to actually like import other packages, and it's a painful process, right? With cargo, it's it, it's so easy, right? Like you can just use someone else's code. It was like the perfect package, right? Because you have so, you have something that's incredibly fast zero cost for imports, really, really good developer support, really good ecosystem, really good community. And you also have like all these massive libraries that are very well maintained um, that mm -hmm. you can just like kind of, it's, it's, it's almost like you just drag and drop it in, 
into your code, right? Um, I feel like that's that's something that kind of really completed the package for me, and um, and I mean, I'm sure that that that's also one pretty big reason why Rust is uh, growing so quickly, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, people don't want to spend time uh, writing code that's uh, like from scratch, right? Like you don't want to be reinventing the wheel. So I feel like yeah. that's something that's uh, that's that's been a big driving factor, um, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're, you're spot on. Uh, the, the ecosystem's a little, a little young. We're still trying to figure out a few things that more, uh, more mature languages have figured out. Like in the JavaScript ecosystem, we've kind of unified on Jest. Uh, there are, there's always like Vitest and Mocha and like other testing tools, but we've, for the most part, unified. Uh, same thing for like servers, right? Like Express kind of won the battle. Uh, there are other other like options, but you you can you can make a confident assumption that if you reach for those tools, it'll have a paved road, right? People will have written docs and tutorials on how to use these tools effectively and how to build like scalable services with it. Rust, like we're we're not quite there yet. Uh, there are like four or five big players in in the Rust like server framework world. Um, yeah. And they're all kind of equally valid options. And yeah. none of them have a tremendous amount more guides or tutorials around them. Um, hopefully with time, we'll, we'll kind of zero in on something that the community likes and gets the backing of like a lot of people, the majority of people. Absolutely. Um, 100%. And could you tell us like a bit more on um, how, like, how Starship kind of really grew, right? Because... Something that I've actually noticed is that kind of with open source, if you want to be uh, like being successful is not only about writing good code, right? Like writing code could be one part. Um, you also need to like know how to position your product or kind of show it off, right? Um, mm -hmm. How do you do that for, for Starship, right? Because um, I mean, what I've kind of noticed is that if you like, so I spent nine months on a tool, right? And at the end of the day, um, I had to like advertise it extensively and I maybe got it to like 200 stars. But um, how did you, so what did you do to, to kind of propel the growth um, in the community for Starship? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so I, I think marketing is, is tremendously underrated in open source. People kind of assume that you make a thing and it's going to end up in people's hands, kind of like, I don't know, uh, YouTube and Instagram have like algorithms that kind of push new content to people. And yeah. that's not to say you don't need to market that content, but, oh, but GitHub doesn't really have that, or not nearly as much. There's now the Explorer page, but at the time there wasn't one. Um, marketing is, is so tremendously important if, if you want your project to have any staying power. Um, Absolutely. So the, the first thing that I think is, is underrated is uh, a good, detailed, like attractive readme. It should be kind of like a landing page to a website, to, to like a marketing page to your business. Um, if the readme isn't able to attract a person, then nothing will. They're not going to end up on your documentation site if they skip past your readme. Um, so I took a fair bit of time to kind of like craft it into what it is today. It's had a lot of iterations, but it kind of, it has a, a lot of strong selling points, like a marketing page. It has like, I think some strong copy that makes it interesting at least. And all you need is that bit of interest. People will be like, yeah, I'll run two commands and try it out on my, my machine. If the barrier to entry is low, then you'll at least get people to try. Um, and once you get enough people to try, 
then a lot of it is word of mouth. So a strong readme is so, so important. And number two, <laughs> I hate to say it, but a bit of luck. Like Starship was in the right place at the right time. Uh, where it used Rust, which was a very attractive, trendy language at the time, um, which already made it interesting. Like positioning it as, it's kind of like Spaceship, but written in Rust. Spaceship, but faster. Like people knew Spaceship. It, it had like 10,000 stars at the time. It was fairly popular. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the thing that, that it kind of developed into, it's, not, it's no longer just Spaceship, right? It's grown from being an opinionated prompt to kind of a prompt framework. People can use it to customize richly. And we've, I, I can talk a bit about how we, we've expanded from like the vision of Spaceship. But um, as for the marketing front, yeah, like having a good readme, good tests, and, and, and good docs to attract good contributors. Um, and the rest is history. We added Starship to the readmes of Spacefish and Spaceship at the time as projects inspired by um, uh, Spacefish has a banner at the top saying like, we're moving over to this one. Uh, and that already just brought up, brought, brought upon like uh, a bunch of enthusiastic uh, users that, that were keeping an eye on our readme. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a combination of things, but what, what's tremendously under, underrated is like a good, strong readme. Uh, I, I went on Fiverr, paid someone to make us a logo. And I think that already is like 20% better than most projects on GitHub. Having a good logo, strong branding, making it recognizable, it goes a long distance. Absolutely, um, and I think like you're uh, you're you're completely like spot on about kind of this 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 assumed discovery uh, not being there for open source, right? It's a because I mean to to be honest, it's this is actually quite common for most early open source like most early open source developers, right? Me included, because uh, when I started. Again, like this, this tool that I was building for, for installing packages, um, I kind of made the assumption uh, that, oh, oh, hey, I'm going to take the battle to Chocolatey, which is the, the, the competitor uh, in the Windows space, right? I'm going to take the battle to them. My product is better, um, and I'm, I'm giving away things for free. Um, and I was like, and in my mind, it was like, like how could people not want this, right? Um, and what I actually realized was that for the few people who, who are actually using my tool, they were really happy, uh, but for those, uh, I mean, I mean, but there was just a massive audience that basically weren't even like, like this wasn't being put in front of their eyes, so they have absolutely no clue how to try this out, right? Um, and and I think that's something that I was like, uh, I think that's actually something I've noticed with a lot of builders over here, even at Builder Group, right? There's people who, who just assume, oh, hey, it's open source, that means that it's very easy to discover. Granted that it, it is easier to discover than, than like closed source, but really like a really important thing I'm actually seeing is that like you need to post this in Reddits, you need to post this on Product Hunt, a few different places, right? Because you, you need people to see it and then it'll kind of sp sp like spread out through Product Hunt, right? Uh, or, or, or like through word of mouth, right? Um, so I think that's, that's something that's absolutely true, uh, which is that like kind of building a successful open source project is a combination of, of like maybe having a really good product as well as having uh, like a good, good marketing skills as well as kind of putting effort into aspects that's not only the code. Um, I think that's, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and I would actually, I would love to know a bit more about uh, kind of 
uh, how you started learning Rust? Like, like because once he, like one question I see from everyone over here is that, hey, like, do I need to read the whole book? Because, like, like, do I need to run all the traits and uh, and generics and all these things, or do I just like jump in, right? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> my personal journey was was reading through the book, so that took that took a long time. Uh, that that took me a good like two months of of uh, you know sessions every every other night. Um, because I was really pouring through it. I was going through like word by word and trying to really internalize what it meant. And honestly, like the last quarter of it, it went way over my head. Um, but even still, I, I came out of it super, like super excited about like just starting to write Rust. Um, and I just made Starship from there. Right. And that's where I learned like the other 80% of Rust is just writing Rust. Uh, it's like any good language. It's like any good skill. You won't get it without practice. Even if you read the book, you're not internalizing it. You're just, you know, going over the words. Um, really? And it, it it doesn't, like, to this day, I think this is a huge testament to Rust. Um, Starship's never been rewritten, right? We The code that's there is still, like, the first Rust code I've ever written. Uh, Starship was the first thing I wrote in Rust. And um, the fact that it's able to keep up, oh, my goodness. Like, most other languages, they they'd buckle over that because uh, you're not writing it the right way. You're not writing it the idiomatic way. Um, you're, not, you're not writing it the performant way. But Rust, you just, it just, yeah, Clippy will fix it for you. Um, and over time, I found the spots where I'm like kind of cringing at my own code from a year ago uh, and fix that up. But the, the, the basis is still there. The architecture is still that of the first Rust project I've written. There's a lot of, I'd like to fix. There's a proof of concept for like, a re-architecture for Starship uh, that I've written up and that we're discussing within the team. But um, yeah, yeah, the, the best way to learn a language, any language, is really just to get in there and get frustrated and spend hours on dumb bugs that uh, that you'll get over <laughs> eventually. Yeah, just uh, just add a and uh, like an ampersand here, or like a, a D reference, like a D reference here, and yeah, you're you're. <laughs> Or a clone, right? Like clones, my favorite. Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's uh, that's actually that's pretty relatable. Um, I went like about the whole process by. Uh, so I mean, and and I'm kind of like I'm actively building this project. It's called Volt. Um, it's supposed to be a JavaScript package manager, like written in Rust, right? And uh, how I actually got into this is like was that I I actually just I read the the first three four chapters. I gave up on the uh, the memory management bit, and I just like jumped right into Rust, like just jumped right into the project. So, and from then it was just a bunch of uh, spamming random characters uh, to make sure that the code works. And now I have like kind of some clue of what I'm doing. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I feel like uh, I've also kind of learned by building. I feel like that's actually the case for a lot of people in in the community, like which is that they're they're really new, like. They just want to get into it. They're they're impatient. Um, I feel like kind of that's one way. And I feel like something that's actually kept me in Rust is that um, although like with bigger projects you have longer compile times and and stuff like that, and and you do get unproductive. Um, 
I feel like kind of the Rust community at the end is always there to kind of back you and encourage you, right? Like, because every single like Reddit post I've posted on the Rust community, like it's it's gained a lot of views. Like people really do encourage you uh, with your projects, right? And you you do get that that respect back and the support from like from the whole community. So I think that's something that's that's really cool that I've actually noticed. And I think it's one of the best communities for all like of all the languages out there. Oh yeah, I think you're spot on. Uh, it's it's such a welcoming, inclusive community. They they do a great job of kind of like everyone in it understands just how difficult Rust is, how hard it is to to maintain that motivation and to get into it. Um, so everyone does like makes a conscious effort to kind of keep it welcoming and to, to to make it approachable, as as unapproachable as Rust might be. Absolutely. Um, and I think kind of moving on, right? So, uh, what are you working on at at Code Sandbox, right? Because obviously, it's 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 already a very well known tool, right? Uh, uh, I mean, I see people uh, using it every day. Uh, literally, everyone knows about it, right? So, could you tell me a bit more on uh, on kind of what you're working on at 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 Code Sandbox, right? And like, uh, and like, are you the person who is uh, like? So, are you like? Did you build it, or are you contributing to it? And like, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So Code Sandbox um, is the brainchild of uh, Evis and Bas, two uh, guys from the Netherlands who kind of made it in their free time while they were in, in university. Uh, it has since gotten like VC backing, uh, a Series A. I joined after the Series A, um, and I've been working on Code Sandbox for over a year now. Um, Code Sandbox. What we're, what we're building right now is very different from how people use it today. So today, Code Sandbox is a browser-based um, web development editor uh, that runs entirely in your browser. So uh, not a lot of people know this, but like you, you're, you're basically running like node servers and, and like the package manager and everything. It's all running in your browser um, using you know, just all, all these, pa all, all these like, uh, fundamental elements of node were ported into a browser-compatible version. Um, so what we're doing at Code Sandbox is, and what we've recently announced is Code Sandbox Projects, which is kind of like the next step. Um, and the idea is that it's a cloud, a cloud-based, uh, it's it's a cloud developer environment. So you are able to connect to an online editor um, that gives you access to a developer environment. Uh, that way, you don't need like a powerful machine to start working. You can start working on your iPad, on your phone, on like a, a dinky Chromebook, um, and have you know all all the meat and potatoes of like a real strong, powerful server. Uh, and what we do is we also give you a few other benefits. Uh, the big selling points are that like it's built for collaboration. We're building Code Sandbox in Code Sandbox right now, uh, so every branch in your repo is a separate running environment and is a live running preview website. So you, we, we can have like, you know, a developer and a designer in the same environment. You can watch each other uh, developing or collaborating on the same code and see a live preview. Um, and what's awesome is that you can also use it with how we envision it is any editor. Right now, we created a VS Code extension. So you could use your local tools, your local themes, your local extensions, connect to Code Sandbox, and pick up where you left off on your iPad. Um, we also have a native iPad app, a native iOS app. So it's kind of like a whole suite. Teams are, are kind of picking it up and using it today to uh, collaborate, to quickly 
kick off like development tasks and and hand each other like running production links of previews. You can think of it as like Netlify deploy previews, but with every key press you get a new preview. It's not just like every time you push and create a PR. Yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. I think that's that's really cool, right? And like something we've actually seen that's uh, that's really growing and that's like super important today is is collaboration and like real time technologies, right? So I think that's that's actually really cool, and I'm uh, I'm looking forward to using uh, to using it. Yeah, yeah. What what I've been mostly working on is is the actually the real time elements of it. Um, I I've kind of been deep diving into the world of uh, real time. collaborative technology, but it's, it's such a cool bleeding edge kind of area, um, making offline first collaborative apps and apps that are able to resolve conflict, even though people might have like slow internet, high ping, whatever the case may be. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating space. So that's kind of been my specialization at Code Sandbox. Yeah, that's, uh, that's actually, that's super cool. Right. And, uh, I mean, are you using Rust or like what, like are you using, uh, like what technologies are you using for the real-time stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, to date, Code Sandbox has been running on Elixir. That's a, that's a good guess uh, for the real-time features. Um, we have started introducing a little Rust here and there, but the truth is most of it's written in like plain old TypeScript. Um, and the conveniences that come with that is that we can have like our, our servers uh, that are written in uh, our, so elements of our server that are in Node can share a lot of like the types and protocols, um, strongly typed protocols uh, as our client and you know our various clients. Um, so there's a lot of code sharing happening. Uh, we haven't seen any like real performance deficiencies from that, but yet. But uh, the team is very interested in Rust, and a lot of us have. Well, a lot of the remaining the the rest of the team has been ramping up on Rust uh, so that we can all kind of pick it up in Rust if need be, or build new services in Rust. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really, really cool. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think, uh, so like, what are your thoughts on kind of open source, right? So obviously, building an open source has been a, a big aspect of, of kind of all the work you've been doing, right? So I'm kind of interested in knowing your thoughts on building an open source versus like closed source and kind of like how building an open source, uh, like called the pros and cons, like what do you think is like, what's your opinion on kind of the open source ecosystem today? And, uh, and yeah, I would love to know that. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough one. My, my feelings on open source have like definitely changed uh, over time. Um, I, I, I love open source and, and you know, I, I'm very glad Starship is open source and Code Sandbox is open source and um, it's, it's super fulfilling seeing so many people uh, get value from the work that you do and be able to contribute to it. Uh, something like Starship wouldn't be possible if it wasn't open source because we have plugins for like, you know, Swift and Elixir and like, you know, .NET, all the languages, um, we have modules for all of those. And I don't know a thing about like most of these languages, right? Uh, one of the purposes of making really good contributor docs and really good tests is so that I can have people who know more about like these languages and Ruby and whatever, like introduce their own language support into Starship. Um, so a project like that makes total sense. 
uh, on, on the flip side, you know, it, it, it's also like a ton of, deve- of developer hours that go into it. And developer hours are, are, are valuable and costly. And, and the time I'm spending building projects like Starship um, is time I could spend building like, you know, a, a profitable startup. Right. So um, it and 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 so I don't know. It's um, I, I think that there's there's a good place for for open source, but I think that open source support needs work. We need to find a way to to incentivize developers to continue keeping things open source and to pay them equitably, um, because at the end of the day, open source. For better or worse, is a sacrifice, right? It's it's opportunity cost. Um, Absolutely. And I mean, yeah. I, so I can't agree with you more on that, right? Like I've personally seen <laughs> a lot of people building some really cool things, um, and they like like they're just left in the dark, right? Like there's there's people just working on some really really cool things. There's there's people working on uh, on some amazing technologies, and they put in a lot of work, like like two years, three years of work. And at the end, like there, there's there's zero users. There's uh, like, and that's because people like they they they're not sure how to launch this, right? Like they they don't mm-hmm. know um, how they can, uh, and like that's that's one aspect, right? And and then uh, kind of the commercial aspect, right? People struggle to make money of it because, um, and, and 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 I mean, this is a growing thing, right? Commercial open source, and I'm and I totally support it, right? Because like your your code could be open source, but you're still charging for like cloud hosting and and things like that right um i feel like kind of the 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 biggest thing today is that developers are like basically spending millions of hours right without like without any reward um and and i feel like that's that's an issue uh since the, like on on one side there's people saying that oh hey i'll i'll pay you like 100 dollars per hour uh, if you like an, if you like join my startup right um and then on, on the other side there's like people spending hours and hours like 90 plus hours a week um, on building open source. And at the end of the day, like they, they literally, like they, they don't get the recognition and the rewards they deserve. Right. So I think I mm-hmm. mean, like you, uh, that's, that's absolutely true. Like, and, and I really do share those, uh, those thoughts with you. Uh, and I mean, I feel like kind of this, this aspect of the ecosystem really needs to be sorted out. Right. Cause people, uh, and, and like, especially if you think about contributions, right contributions can like they can't always just be some sort of donation right because if tomorrow your your software if it kind of goes commercial or something right um i mean what happens to all the contributors who are backing it right so i feel like that is that's actually that's completely true i i like i could not agree with you more right and i've i've kind of seen mm-hmm. this and it's it's been a hot topic today right which is that how developers are going to be compensated for their like for all their work in open source so yeah i i could not agree with you more on this I, I think that that another like another strong factor about this is that um, the developers might not be earning uh, very much or anything at all, but at the same time you have like huge corporations that their product is based on it, right? They're making millions because of the work that someone else did out of their good of their heart. Um, things like I don't know, like uh, you know your favorite test runner or server. Like I, I don't know who funds Express, but without a doubt, like. Thousands of services and businesses are dependent on Express, um, and they're, ma- they're they're raking in millions. And I, I don't know if Express is like part of a foundation that earns money, or uh, if if people are uh, if corporations are uh, donating developer time to Express. But like, there there's some imbalance there, and and it it I don't I don't know I don't know the answer, but I wish 
we could find a way to make this equitable and, and fair for people who who come up with these fantastic ideas that businesses now depend on entirely. Absolutely. And I think kind of that was also noticed in log4j attacks, right? Like everyone was dependent on open source technologies. And like suddenly these contributors uh, who, who, who do have like lives outside of open source are completely pressurized uh, to actually to uh, to kind of fix these issues and the the vulnerabilities. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think kind of that 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 opened my eyes as well. Right. Uh, because it is definitely a pressing issue today, right? Uh, and open source, uh, it's it's an awesome, actually, like kind of way to build, right? Uh, but uh, like the the issue actually is obviously that uh, people need to be compensated, and like open source is not a way to build a living, right? Like today, if you're not commercial, uh, there's almost no way to actually build a living with open source unless you get sponsored by like a a crazy number of people. But mm-hmm. I yeah, I mean, I think what like like your thoughts on that are, I mean, like, I completely agree with you. And, and I would actually like, I would love to know a bit more about, uh, like kind of maybe like what you're looking forward to building in the future, uh, maybe with open source or side projects, uh, or like, yeah, like what do you have in store, uh, for the future? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've got some, some good ideas for, for Starship for, for building it out. Uh, that's not anything that would be like, uh, that, that that would that would earn me a buck though, but as as you can imagine, like a lot of people love Starship, and and we want to continue maintaining it. We have a lot of great ideas for like how we can make it both more extensible or or expanded in the future. Um, to name a couple, like Starship, in in Starship we we take a we take a lot of pride in in how configurable it is, um, but there is a limit, right? We we have an upper bound because our configuration is also fairly simple. We want to make it both approachable to beginners, but also rich and expressive for people who want to build, like you know, a custom prompt on top of this, uh, on top of Starship, um, and that's that's a balance that's hard to strike. So I think the plan, what we're what we're playing around with now, is is embedding a scripting engine into Starship, so that people who really want to like deck out their Starship to work their Starship prompt to work exactly as they want to, they'll have basically a programming language that they can use. Uh, to build up their prompt. And what Starship will take care of in that case is like accessing, um, you know, environment values and, and language values. And like, you can quickly find out, uh, you know, get status and stuff. Uh, so you don't have to think about like the, o- the overhead of that, things that all prompts kind of need to deal with. And instead you could just think about the styling and like what shows up when and how it looks. So uh, that, and the other thing is, um, a growing burden on the Starship maintainers has been supporting all these modules. So like the Node module and, and the Swift module, and like we want to be able to support any language you use, but we can only spend so much time and have only so much expertise. We don't cover the entire gamut of possible languages that we support in Starship among our maintainers. Um, so the best thing would be to kind of outsource that. So we're thinking of building like a plugin ecosystem uh, so kind of like Brew or Chocolatey or whatever, you can install a plugin or a module um, that would have you know support for Swift and show your Swift version number. Uh, that way, someone else who's a Swift expert can maintain that code base. Uh, where that gets a little complicated is that Rust makes dynamic, like dynamic, um, dynamic importing of dependencies very difficult. It's not very easy to like 
just pull in a dependency on the fly while the code is running and install it. Uh, so that's a hurdle that we're kind of trying to figure out. But it'd be really cool to have, yeah, like a proper plugin ecosystem for Starship. Um, outside of Starship, uh, I'm, I'm also uh, doing some work on Anilist, which is a, a, a social network for anime and manga fans. Um, we, the, the, the project is growing tremendously, and uh, we want to kind of make it able to... to Mm, what's the word? We, we have a lot of new designs and ideas for, for, for how it'll work. Um, so I've been spending a lot of my time working on that. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's kind, of, that's kind of what my free time is these days, like building up new ideas for Starship and new ideas for Anilist uh, whenever I have a free moment after Code Sandbox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's awesome, right? And I think it's also it's pretty nice that... Um, you, you you still can continue building an open source uh, with uh, with Starship, and you still find the time to maintain uh, Starship and um, and the other libraries, right? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think kind of um, that's that's pretty cool, right? Like I find uh, like the scripting thing is pretty cool, right? Because you because uh, you obviously are able to both support those who are new to the ecosystem uh, and like those who are experienced and like they really want to uh, kind of customize their prompt, right? Um, I think the plugins is also really cool, right? Because uh, you could have someone else maintaining the plugins, but uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's a great extension to the actual shell, right? Um, and like, I feel like that's, uh, that's, that's something that's, that's really cool. Um, and I think that's, that's the biggest benefit of open source, right? Like, uh, you just give them a way to, 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 to extend your software and boom, like they just do it, right? Uh, people who are passionate about it will, like they will do it, right? Um, and that's like a mm -hmm. great way to actually build the whole ecosystem. So I think that's, that, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's very exciting. We can spend our time working instead on like performance improvements in Starship and, and maybe introducing different new features as opposed to kind of maintaining these, these language implementations that we honestly don't know a whole lot about, right? We're making a lot of assumptions uh, and we'd much rather have somebody who, who's like a diehard Swift fan maintain our Swift integration. Absolutely. Um, I think that's uh, that's pretty much it. Like, I mean, if you have any questions for me about Builder Group or the whole community, um, I mean, please feel free to. But it's uh, it's been really awesome chatting with you. Like, you're you're a big inspiration to to almost all of us in in Builder Group, and we we really really do appreciate your time. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's it's really awesome what y'all are doing on Builder Builder Group. I uh, I've been lurking for a bit, just like. Uh, you know, see, seeing what y'all are, are chatting about and, and joining in on these builder talks, um, uh, it's it's really exciting to to see like the the next generation of of developers and entrepreneurs kind of get their kickstart here. Really exciting stuff. Uh, I'm looking forward to see you know the the next I don't know big big founders and CEOs of big tech coming out of here. <laughs> awesome uh, and yeah, thank you so much for the kind words and uh, and yeah, again, awesome chat with you. And we hope to have you, or we hope to see you active in the community. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for taking the time. Uh, if any of y'all have any questions about Starship, development in Rust, whatever it may be, feel free to, to reach out. My Twitter is MattChai. Uh, my GitHub is MattChai. Uh, you know, feel free to open a discussion on, on the Starship uh, GitHub 
on, on the Starship repo. It's called a repo. Uh, we, we've got our own Discord. If you've got any questions, yeah, whatever, whatever it may be, uh, always happy to chat. All right, awesome. Um, so take care, um, and we'll we'll see you soon. Yeah, see you around. All right, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye bye.